You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. No idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat and tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I'm Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hey everyone, we're still hard at work on the new site, so in the meantime I thought it would be fun to share one of my earliest interviews from back in the days before my now gravelly voice was so well refined. This one's with Lilibet Snellings, author of Box Girl, My Life as a Part-Time Art Installation. I hope you enjoy. how that came to be was uh, I was working as a freelance writer in LA and it was kind of right when the recession hit so you know the the bottom sort of dropped out of not only the publishing industry but you know the economy as a whole so Mm -hmm. you know I found myself trying to or having to rather uh, sort of supplement that freelance income if you could even call it that um, (laughs) by all of these various other jobs you know cocktail Mm -hmm. waitressing going on auditions, you know, mm-hmm. being an extra in commercials or music videos, you know, nannying, um, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, being a box girl, um, <laughs> and <laughs> not, of course, being a box girl, because that's... Well, it's a natural progression for a 20-something in L.A., right? Yeah, ex- exactly. But basically, my point is, is that, you know, I was just, you know, trying to pay my rent and make, me, make mm-hmm. ends meet, um, and how I got the box girl job was... I was working at Flaunt Magazine, which is an independent arts uh, and entertainment magazine in L.A., okay. and one of the girls who works there, she used to be a box girl. Mm-hmm. This is so Claire? So she told me. What's that? This is Claire, right? Yes, Claire, okay. exactly. Close reading. I love that. <laughs> um, and so Claire said she was kind of a retired box girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said that the uh, standard was looking for a new blonde, you know, mm-hmm. of course they have like the blonde box girl, the brunette box girl, the Asian box girl. It's such a surreal, it's like a box of chocolates. PC, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's like your own, you know, variety pack of box girls. <laughs> um, and, and I also should explain very briefly what a box girl is. Yes. So, like you said, at the Standard Hotel on Sunset Boulevard, right in the middle of Sunset Strip in mm-hmm. Hollywood, in West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um there is a giant glass box behind the concierge desk mm-hmm. at the Standard Hotel. Um, it's about 15 feet long and about four feet tall and about probably four feet wide. <laughs> and in it, each night, a different girl gets paid, you know, to sit inside it mm-hmm. for seven hours at a time. And basically the only, oh, there are a couple of rules, which I'll, I'll be sure to yeah, tell you. I think but, we'll read um, those in a second, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But the um, but one of kind of the main rules was uh, that the box girl's not allowed to make eye contact with mm-hmm. anyone outside the box. And the reason for that is they wanted it to be like, you know, human installation art. So anyway, I was one of those that it's evocative of being in a zoo or that experience of being in the glass where you're both observed and observing, but at the same time, you're supposed to ignore the existence of the box at all and pretend as right. if you were... Just being yourself. Do you have Do you have the rules on hand by any chance? If so, yeah. Okay. Oh, I do actually. In one of the early chapters of mm-hmm. um, in one of the early chapters of the book, I actually list the you know box girl rule sheet, and it is the actual list that was emailed to all of the box girls. Um, <laughs> and I won't read them all all to you, okay. but um, I can kind of highlight some of my favorites. Sure, you know? so, let's go with that. You know, in addition to some of the very standard rules, like, you know, where to park or, you know, what to wear. And Mm -hmm. I should tell you, that was white boy shorts, so short white shorts and a white tank top. Um, That was, you know, sort of the box girl uniform. A somewhat Um, revealing outfit, but not too revealing. Right, exactly. It's supposed to seem sort of wholesome, but (laughs) it's not. You know, of course, 
very much like winking at sexiness. I mean, it's like Inviting, all yeah. white cotton. You know, there's some sort of purity there, but really, it's. I mean, let's be honest. It, it's still a. It's not like we're in there and. Uh, it's still the crinkled packaging in a box of chocolates kind of feel. The stuff you want to get through, and that element of enticing or wrapping, and all these other trappings that these art pieces they'd put into the box would, I guess, connote or comment on as the year passed. I think there's one you write about later where there is a picture of a large man with a fork and knife leering over you. Yes. yes. I think that was a you know, an art installation during November. So mm-hmm. it was supposed to be like, you know, a nod to Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> yeah, and of course, instead of, you know, preparing to carve a turkey, this like fat man painted onto the back wall was got a knife in one hand and a fork in the other and, and I'm surrounded by like gourds and carrots and squash. <laughs> so it's it like you've got to carve me. You're the turkey, and yeah, yes. yeah, and you're right. The um the box each month a different artist did an art installation, you know, in the box as well. So the the box girls were kind of the permanent art installation mm-hmm. but the uh, what was ha- going on behind them and sometimes around them, um, that changed monthly. But yeah, so uh, white white tank top, white shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, that was so uniform. So you know the the rules. Like I said, some some are you know your very standard rules. Um, what time to arrive, that sort of thing. But then of course there were some much more absurd rules, like my personal <laughs> favorite rule. Yes. Rule. You know what you want. I'm going to say, mm-hmm. um, which is which was please wear undergarments. <laughs> I love how it's phrased and, as a request. Yeah, exactly. Please wear undergarments. And I actually say the next chapter is titled Please Wear Undergarments. (laughs) And it's only a sentence long. And that sentence just says something like, you know, I never thought I'd be employed at a place where that needed to be put in writing. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So that one was kind of amazing. You know, at Disney, I believe they at one point had communal for the uniforms for, you know, Mickey and Goofy and whatnot things you were to change in because you sweat so profusely. Of course, those had to be clean oh. regularly. But just the... Oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> well, and another... So I... Okay. In a later chapter, I talk about, um, you know, a friend of mine who used to work at Hooters. <laughs> right, yes. And, and, you know, just kind of because it's also a job where you're wearing very little clothing and people are sort of, you know, ogling you or whatever. And mm-hmm. so just... And, and, uh, and one of my favorite anecdotes about that she told me about working at Hooters is that in the back of Hooters, they have this vending machine that dispenses <laughs> the, those shiny, you know, figure mm-hmm. skater types that they have to wear, mm-hmm. you know, and underwear and the short orange shorts. So, yeah, she was like, it was like a snack machine, but for, you know, nylon tights. So it's kind of the same packaging. idea. Yeah. You know, if you spill, you know, <laughs> buffalo wing sauce on your tights, you had to go back to the snack machine and get a new pair. So, yeah. So anyway, yeah, the, the rules, there there are very, um, there are very specific rules, which was very funny. Um, a lot of rules for a job that really doesn't take a lot of, where you don't actually really do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Except attempt to or pretend to be yourself. Exactly, exactly. And that comes down to the, you know, the no eye contact. And like you said, the, um, you're supposed to sitting there and act as if you have no idea that anyone is watching you, which of course is completely impossible. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, they, they would say, um, you know, act as if you're alone in your living room. Okay. Well, first of all, you know, I didn't have a living room. Right. You were in a studio. Uh, Right. I was, you know, I think my apartment at the time was like so small that I could basically, you know, open my front door while I was in the shower. <laughs> so this idea of lounging in my, quote, living mm-hmm. room, that was like funny in and of itself. But, you know, the other funny thing, of course, is that, you know, how you act while you're on display is most definitely not how you act when you are, quote, alone in your living room, mm-hmm. you know. But when I'm sitting in the box, you know, I'd always... You know, sit in a way that I felt, you know, that made me look skinny or pretty. You know, my hair was done and my, I had my lipstick or lip gloss on. And, mm-hmm. um, whereas at home I was probably wearing some really awkward tube socks and like an awkward pair of shorts or sweatpants. Mm-hmm. Um, 
You know, well, my hair is in like a greasy pile on top of my head. You know, and needless to say, alone in your living room, there's there's really nothing sexy about it. There, there are allowances um, you give yourself, and you're not truly aware of those until you think about how you have to limit them, or how you would have to limit them to act or perform that in public. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's this whole... Um, you know, it was just a, it was just a very manufactured you mm-hmm. know, reality. It's a, it's it's someone's fantasy about how a girl looks when she's alone in her living room. You know, right. left her own devices. You know, she's always in these short white shorts and a small white tank top. You know, lying on her very toned tummy, reading a magazine. It, mm-hmm. it always reminded me of Miss Torso in Rear Window. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Remember Miss Torso? She was always like in these tiny little outfits, always mm-hmm. exercising and doing legless. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, that's someone's fantasy about well, how someone what like we, and women always just sit around looking pretty and never making a mess and exercising. <laughs> you, you touch upon that later with your friend Claire, where she talks about how art originated from the female image, and I think this is a good place to talk talk about this when you decide to look into who had invented the box and decided it should be a part of the standard because that wasn't information provided to you up front. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Um, just my own curiosities. Um, as I started to kind of write about this, and I, I should say that kind of as soon as I got this, um, got this job, you know, I immediately started writing about it. I mm-hmm. immediately started jotting down observations. Both and, in the box and outside. And, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I knew that, that this was sort of a sufficiently strange enough scenario that it, it had to be written down. And in addition to that, I'm always writing stuff down, you know, as mm-hmm. someone who writes a nonfiction, I, you know, I, I draw from real experiences. So, so anyway, yes, I was always writing about the box and I was always, and I, and in that I became very curious about, you know, who came up with this concept for the box? And the, the hotel was very um, scarce in their details mm-hmm. as far as giving out information on, you know, hotel design concepts and all that. Um, but the, the designer of the hotels was a man, and, you know, I kind of talked about how this concept, it, it almost had to be hatched from the head of a man because, you know, like I said... It, you do touch and, upon it as an unwritten rule, though, that men were not wanted in the box. Well, they, I mean, so there, in my tenure at Rockstar, there was, um, there was, there were no box boys or men there was well there was for one hot second and i i think there was a box boy for like a few months um but again i don't know what he looked like and i never got to meet him because i never really got to meet it you know you don't really meet any of the boxes no fraternization yes yeah but i think there was one for a hot second which is cool um that they tried that Mm -hmm. um but I, I think that was only once, and I don't think it lasted very long. So, <laughs> Which says a lot right there. Yeah, exactly. So, um, What was, for you, the most memorable experience, or the one you would have liked to keep out of writing but felt had to be in the book? I think my favorite part about it, and, and I should say that this is in no way, you know, the book, I'm not talking, you know, it's not some expose on this horrible thing that I no. did and that I think is, you know degrading to women or all of that. I mean, I obviously reflect on some of the social and sexual implications of this job, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I really, for the most part, came away um, enjoying it because Mm -hmm. I love, as, like I said, as a writer, as a nonfiction writer, as an observer, as someone who's always jotting down notes and always looking for new material, um, I loved being behind this glass wall because I could have... I could observe it and I could kind of be that fly on the wall, Mm -hmm. but without, you know, anyone questioning my tape recorder or wondering what I was writing down. And and that goes to your question of what my favorite part was. And I would say it definitely was um, the fact that uh, people didn't think I could hear them. (laughs) Um, It's a great moment. Yeah. So, you know what, I might actually even just read part of this chapter where I talk about that. But, uh, yeah. Because I started kind of jotting down some notes about it, and I thought, you know what, this chapter is short enough that it, it kind of gives you a good good uh, feeling for what okay. I'm trying to talk about. This chapter is called, She's Got a Good Booty for a White Girl. <laughs> I remember this one. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and it's not even two pages long. It's really only one. Uh, it says, and I will begin. <laughs> um, People in the lobby assume I can't hear them while I'm in the box. 
Perhaps it's from watching too many crime-themed TV shows, but there's something about a glassed-in room that makes people assume it's soundproof. It's not. If I choose to listen, I can hear everything. I can hear the drunk couple at the end of the night, her hanging on his arm like a koala on a branch, asking how much for a room for the night. I can hear the group of guys debating between the Sky Bar, the Chateau Marmont, or the Strip Club, as well as the unanimous decision. Strip Club. Done. Most interestingly, I can hear any and all commentary about that girl in the box. Me. Tourists, especially those with southern accents, seem to ask the most questions. They'll lean forward on the front desk, their bags still flung over their shoulders, and demand to know. Well, how in the hell long is she in there for? Sometimes, concerned parents ask, is it hard to breathe in there? But the most asked question by far is, can they go to the bathroom? <laughs> Only once. <laughs> Everyone always asks this. Of course. When anyone finds out I'm a box girl, this is always the first thing they want to know. It is such a ludicrous question, I can't resist giving a ludicrous answer. No. <laughs> Are you serious, they'll ask? For how long? Seven hours, I'll say. What? They'll demand, how do you do that? Some box girls go in their pants, I say, but I prefer to avoid liquid for 24 hours prior to my shift. Just dry out like a raisin. Of course we are allowed to go to the bathroom. Like the questions, I also hear a lot of observations about, well, myself. One night, a young African-American guy leaned over the counter and said to the male concierge, she's got a good booty for a white girl. I lay there on my stomach, my booty behind me, stadium-like lights shining down upon it, and stared at my book, Frozen. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Though I'm no expert, I'm fairly certain this means I have a large booty for a white girl. I much prefer the question I'll hear if I'm lying very, very still. Is she real? This always makes me happy because I know mannequins don't have cellulite. <laughs> Hey, pardon interruption, but do you want to learn more about love, lust, sex, anger, happiness, music, time, space, and the human race? I hope you do, because I'm here to beg you to listen to Soul Forge Podcast. We're your weekly dose of life and living here on the ESO Network. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts and soulforgepodcast.com. A proud partner of the Rusted Robot Podcast here on the ESO Network. Let's find out together. You know, dip it into some of the observations I hear um, while I was in there. But that's what was so wonderful as kind of a fact-finding mission, or as I, I love you, you often use the, the phrase anthropologist. You mm -hmm. know, um, observing people around you, and you know, I love airports for that reason. I love subways for that reason. You know, getting to see people in their natural habitat, and and also then going back to this concept of you know they're observing me while I'm also observing them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we weren't allowed to make eye contact, but, of course, they, they say nothing about looking. Which is human so, nature, yeah. So I was looking around. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, often I was surfing the web or, you know. You're right about that, too. The attempt to try and survive without Internet. Yes, exactly. Well, I try. I would, like, have these, like, grand ambitions of bringing in, you know, like, a 700-page Donna Tart book, and mm -hmm. I was going to read it all while inside the box, but... You know, three minutes go by, and I'm like, okay, now let's just get the laptop <laughs> Back to the laptop, yep. Yeah, but yes, uh, being, able, being able to observe and, and over, overhear people eavesdrop, really, mm -hmm. um, that was definitely, the, uh, definitely my favorite part. You know, it's fascinating because this... That piece and also just the, the style and structure of your book remind me of two different works. Well, three, I should say. One, the first name that came to mind reading was Joan Didion, who I know is an inspiration to you. The yeah. next is there's an old essay by Zora Neale Hurston talking about racism and yeah. names people called her and how she perceived of what people said versus how they looked at her. And it, she felt there were two entirely yeah. different experiences. The yeah, third that's one. Oh, so interesting. Mm -hmm. I, that, that's so interesting. Um, 
I haven't read that essay, but I actually would love for you to. Let me, um, it's, this is a great book. I don't mean to plug other books than yours on this one, but it's a collection no. of the best American essays edited right. by Joyce Carol Oates from the past hundred years. And it has everything from James Thurber. There's a great piece. Right. I have, yeah, okay. yeah. I, I've, I've, I have had that book at some point. I'm looking, I have a stack of my best American books on mm-hmm. my bookshelf together. But I think that one I must have had from the library and returned. But yeah, it's the one, it's a big white one. Yes. It has John Judy and the White Album. It has James Baldwin. It has a mm-hmm. million different yeah. I love that book. Um, yes. Oh, it's a great one. The other one I am looking up at the moment, the reason I mentioned anthropology a fair amount is that when I was studying it, there was a push to move toward this notion called ethnography, where we are participants in both the interaction between the group we're studying and in what happens afterwards. You know, we're, as anthropologists, spokespeople, we have to serve as representatives. And this woman who wrote the book, Nisa, had gone as part of this anthropological, biological study of, and I will butcher the name because I can't do this well, the tribe is called the Kung. It's a, they have a glottal stop. It's shown in print as an exclamation mark. And they're one of the tribes that lives in Africa, I believe, toward the central or southern part before it's been altered or otherwise changed. And the author of Nisa went in with a group of other anthropologists, in her case, to study the dietary habits of this population and was grabbed by this woman, Nisa who said, I don't want you to ask any other questions, but I want you to sit and listen to my story and my life. And she was so forceful that she ended up dominating this entire study project, and they became close friends. But in the process of documenting this woman's story, the author, let's see, I feel terrible I don't have her name up, but I'll have it in a second. She realized that she had to be honest about what drew her to this study and what she was supposed to do with the information having captured or obtained it. Marjorie Shostak. The book is called okay. Nisa, the Life and Words of a Kung Woman. And it's, the glottal stop, I believe, is a something like a, a, to, a tongue click. But reading, I'm going to make you email the, this to me. Remind me of that. I, <laughs> because I know you reference a lot of books. We'll touch upon the Panopticon later, which you said in reflection, thinking about your experience in the box and how ultimately... You did feel proud at the end that you could put yourself on display and not feel like you were displaying yourself. But before we touch upon that, I want to touch upon another Didion-esque aspect of the book, which is your structure. It's present in anything you're writing about the box, past when you're reflecting about anything that's happened outside of, and you love these inserts and footnotes and lists and clippings. You have a lot of clippings, which are things you collect just as a habit. Right. You know, the structure is, you know, it's a bit unconventional and like you said, the um, the box chapters are, for the most part, well, the box chapters are all in present tense, yes, and for the most part, they're all very short. Mm-hmm. And while the outside box chapters are in past tense, and they're they're a bit longer, and you know, this was this was definitely very intentional. And the reasoning behind this was that I wanted those inside the box chapters, you know, to feel very immediate. Um, I wanted, you know, it to feel like the reader was sort of in there with me. And also I felt that it was just more true to the sort of fragmented way, fragmented way that I was writing them. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. in there writing 15-page chapters. I was, you know, in there jotting down on the back of a bookmark or something. Mm-hmm. You know, man, 12 o'clock, flannel shirt, waving his arms like he's stuck in a riptide trying to get my attention, doesn't realize I'm not allowed to look. You know, these, like short little observations. You know, we have these like shorter inside the box vignettes, um, funny little observations or things that I'm thinking or things that I'm overhearing. And then we sort of zoom out to my larger life in Los Angeles, going on auditions and waiting tables and living by the beach and, Mm -hmm. you know, all this stuff. Um, But but generally speaking, yes. I mean, I've I've always been drawn to the very short form, um, to sort of these very tight little packages of prose. Someone who does that expertly is, you know, Lydia Davis, someone mm-hmm. who I'm a big fan of, um, or Evan Evan Connell, Evan S. Connell, mm-hmm. who wrote Mrs. Bridge, Mr. Bridge. Also, just it's amazing what he could do in two paragraphs. Um, so, you know, being drawn, I've always been drawn to very short prose, and also I've I've also been very drawn to sort of this these hybrid forms, this sort of intersection okay. of 
nonfiction fiction of incorporating, you know, found elements from your real life, um, you know, emails, lists, scraps of paper. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I'm always jotting things down on these tiny little scraps of paper mm-hmm. that now have traveled with me. I moved to Chicago, you know, six months ago, and they have, I, I literally <laughs> transported, like, bags <laughs> and bags full yes. of scraps of paper. Like, my husband thinks I'm a crazy person. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I just can't. I can't bear to throw them away or type them into the computer because that's something I talk about is that, you know, the thing that they're written on sometimes tells as much of a story as the observation itself. Well, the memory is bound up to the object. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So, you know, I can't, if if I type them into a Word document, they just, it's not the same as, you know, on the back of a beer stained coaster from Mm -hmm. Panano's, you know, in Venice you know, a dive bar that I used to go to. I mean, that tells a whole different story. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, there are various fragmented pieces, you know, incorporated into this book. And also one thing that you mentioned are lists. And what's so funny is that I started writing this thing five, six years ago. Okay. And 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 now, you know, lists are everywhere. You know, BuzzFeed, McSweeney's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. BuzzFeed, yeah. McSweeney's has been doing it, doing very, very well for mm-hmm. a long time. And their lists are really well done um, and, and sort of very artfully put together. But, you know, now, with, yeah, BuzzFeed, you know, I mean, and the advent of this, you know, the listicle. I mean, there's a <laughs> yes. word for it now, the list article. I do you know, hate where that word, by the way, although the word I hate that explains it is even worse, which is jargonize. It is what it says. Oh, God. I mean, there's so many. There's (laughs) so many words. And recently they changed the definition of literally. Did you know that? Oh. That one really gets me. They didn't change it. They just added a secondary definition. Okay, just still. Yeah, exactly. So now we've got listicles Mm -hmm. and whatever else. And, you know, so. What's so powerful about the list, though? I mean, both what is it that appeals to you? And you had said there's something potent about how it's structured and how the the content is delivered. Yeah, I mean, I think that if a list is well put together, and a list should build towards something, just like any piece of um, work should, you know, I, I think that if, and like I said, I mean, McSweeney's, some of those are so bleeping funny, and I don't, I don't know what we're <laughs> Oh, like we're not censoring here. it, just get, Okay, good, yeah. I was going with so goddamn funny. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, a lot of that is the way that they build, you know, with, with humor, you know, you're always supposed to build towards the funny mm-hmm. um, and, and ending on the funniest note, you know, the funniest hit, the funniest pop. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that if you structure a list well, or even if you, you know, one of my lists are like, you know, 25 things about the box girl or whatever. Yes, these were you know, things you had just mentioned how it was talking about private and public life, how in the box, you were still capable of holding back so much because you weren't, say, as much on Google. People couldn't find everything out about you without having to at least interact. So you, I think you used that chapter as a way to reveal things people wouldn't have known back then? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe even without knowing that that was what I was doing. But right. yeah, exactly. You know, that everyone's standing back 15 feet away in the lobby. But basically... They can find out a hell of a lot more about me from, like, if they knew my first and last name from a Google search or, you know, whatever, than they can just from standing there and wondering, you know, who is this girl and what is she reading? Um, And I liked that about the box. It actually left something to the imagination, um, Mm -hmm. that you're sort of not oversharing, that in some ways you were sort of undersharing. So so that, that appealed to me. And another thing that appealed to me is that, you know, a two-inch thick piece of glass that protected me from <laughs> mm-hmm. those people. I think that if I were having to wear the short shorts and the tiny tank top and, and interact and flirt or dance or, you know, even serve buffalo wings at a Hooters, you know, <laughs> I would have, like, killed myself. And there um, you're forced to interact with them. That's part of the – it's mandatory to the position. Exactly. Whereas, you know, with this, I, I, I get to be observed, but I also get to be protected. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have to interact. So that, that appealed to me because, you know, I'm, I, I can be both a very outgoing person and a very, very introverted person at the same do you, time. So. Do you find part of that is you do touch a lot about your family and your background from Georgia and then off into Connecticut and eventually declaring, I'm going out west and that's it. Right. You, <laughs> because you do have quite a gregarious family. And they're all characters as well, at least from how they're yeah, portrayed in the book. Indeed. 
do you find that's a natural rhythm for yourself, having the opportunity to be both out there in the world and then withdraw from it and reflect? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that because I am that way is probably one of the reasons that I was drawn to writing. You know, I, I often blame it on being a Gemini, that I'm sort of two people in one. I'm both the person who's the life of, the, I can either be the person who's the life of the party, you know, I'm, or I'm the person who, you know, breaks out in hives when my phone rings. Um, <laughs> but, you know, writing is mm-hmm. always sort of appealed to that sort of like halfness that kind of consumes me so wholly that, you know, I'm... When I'm, when I'm writing, I, I get the sort of uninterrupted luxury of being completely by myself pretty much all day long. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, when I want to kind of come out of my shell, come out of my cave and publish something or bring something into the world, you know, I get I get the pleasure of that sort of showmanship as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and what's so interesting about that is that the box is the exact same way because it, it both, you know, isolated me and put me on display at the same time, you know, so sort of like when me and my, I, I drew some parallel, like when me and my writing or, you know, me, me and my thighs or, you know, um, want to come out of their little cave, whether it's in the box or putting a piece of work out to the world, you know, mm-hmm. it's out there, I'm out there for, you know, all of my vulnerabilities are out there for the public to pick apart. Um, so, you know, that of course has pros and cons, but yeah, I... I'm kind of both at the same time. I, like I said, I'm both very introverted and very outgoing. Hello, America. You like listening to knowledgeable people who are passionate about what they do? Wilbur does, don't you, Wilbur? But what about Daisy? She likes to listen to shows about pop culture, movies, television, and comic books. Good thing Wilbur and Daisy found the Nerd Bliss Podcast. You, too, can find the Nerd Bliss Podcast at nerdblisspodcast.com and on the ESO Network. Just remember, Nerd Bliss is one word. Yeah, this is probably a good point to start talk about the slash career you mentioned. And initially, yeah. you, you placed that into the, the profession of anyone in L.A. is I'm a writer, actor, actress, comedian, waitress, waiter, whatever else I need to be doing to stay afloat at the time. But as you explored this more, what you felt, I guess, and you'll probably have a better way of saying this, is that this is something endemic to our generation and to our age group. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's so funny because this whole, I don't know who came up with the word slash. I should have done that research. Um, but, you know, it had to have originated in L.A. You know, this kind of idea that you're a writer slash actress slash waitress slash nanny slash whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that it's so prevalent in L.A. because people come to L.A. or we could use this with New York and acting as well um, or being an artist or whatever. You know, you come to these cities wanting to be these very big things and, you know, an, a young actress comes to L.A. and they think they're going to book a commercial in six months or book a pilot in a year or be a series regular in two years. And, and while that dream might come true, you know, it might come true in five to 15 to 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, not one to two. Um and so to supplement those dreams, you know, you have to do things like be a nanny or work at a restaurant or whatever, because you just can't survive. You can't pay to put the gas in your car to go to the auditions. Um, so yes, in LA, it's, it's very prevalent. And I was, you know, I saw it everywhere I turned, but, you know, including with my myself. But you're right that, I mean, I think with our generation in general, you know, especially, you know, I mean, I'm, I think we're about the same age. 31, um, 32, somewhere on there, yeah. 31, 32, exactly. Although, um, 25 at heart. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I was going to say, we don't have to mention it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no one knows um, those are the actual ages unless they Google us. That's right, that's right. Yeah, it's not hard to find out someone's actual age anymore, so we might as well embrace it. Sure. Um, but yeah, with the, you know all of us who sort of graduated in this sort of post 9-11 economy. I mean, the economy has just been in such flux for the last 10 years. It's been great. Yes. It's been terrible. You know, and so our, our generation, we don't just graduate from college and, and get a job and stay in it for 30 years like maybe many of our fathers did or our parents did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most, most people I know have had a dozen different jobs over the last decade. And, you know, I, I think it's also because, you know, people are people are marrying later, people are having children later, you know, 
your twenties used to be, you know, you graduated from college, yes. um, and and it was time to be an adult. But you know, now this, you know, your twenties sort of morphed into this like buffer zone where you're you're not quite sure if you're a kid or an adult. You know, we're all sort of living in this or we were, so it's this sort of perpetual state of rest development where we're not quite, you know, you're, it's just kind of this weird in-between decade. You now. call it, I think, um, an, an elongation of... Right, exactly. I mean, your 20s, it feels like, it feels, it felt, for me at least, yes. I shouldn't keep speaking these, you know, sweeping generalizations, because of course I have adorable friends who got married at age 24 and have three children and are as happy as can be, so... This is how it works for me. I should okay. preface all of my sentences by <laughs> saying that um, instead of just you know speaking for a generation. <laughs> hey, now, hey now, when we were in grad school, we were told that was our objective as writers, remember? Right, exactly. Lena Dunham's already uh, taken the title of the voice of the generation, so, you know. There should be a um, championship. We'll have that every year. Someone can knock her yeah, out. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I can't now I can't even remember what I was saying. <laughs> you were talking about, you know, how your twenties yeah. last for yes. me, it seems like they lasted for fifty years. You know? Um, it's like the longest decade because you're you know, you try on so many different um senses of self in your twenties, you know, you go through all these various phases and, and stages and you know, it just Anyway, you live like, I mean, I say at some point in the book, I don't know how many lives I lived in my 20s, like 10, 15. I mean, you just, you, you live so many different lives in that decade. It's so. fascinating. You do, I think, and you try to find or reconnect with old lives. You talk about the marathon you ran in Portland, which touches yeah. back to your love of running and how you lost it in college because the competitiveness cut out the joy for you. Exactly. Yeah. Reconnecting with old senses of self. Yeah, for me, you know, running was a huge part of my life in, in high school and in college. It was really like a large part of my identity was like little bit the runner, you mm -hmm. know. And, you know, again, as your 20s wear on, you know, you, you start losing these these parts of yourself and you hate it, or at least I did, where all of a sudden, you know, five years had gone by and I, I hadn't gone for a run. I had no one had ever thought of me as someone who runs, you know, and I, yes, I felt I this, like, very deep sadness for losing that version of myself. So, yeah, you're right, and that's, that's really interesting, because I talk a lot about how throughout your 20s, you kind of start trying to shed some of those, yes. those selves, how you, um, we try on all these different personalities, you know, I, I went through the hippie stage, and the preppy stage, and the hipster stage, and, you know, the surfer girlfriend stage, mm -hmm. and the, you know, all these different things, and, you know, and hopefully by the time I got to 30, you know, I started shedding some of those selves. So um, I, I not only grew up, but I kind of grew into, you know, the version of myself that felt most me. But then also, like you said, reconnecting with right. some of these parts of you from your childhood that maybe you had gotten away from um, well, while I trying to be something that you weren't. In a way, it almost strikes me that as much as in your adolescence you are, acquiring things that were different. And I do feel like part of right. teenage existence is acquiring parts of yourself you couldn't think of before. And then now in the 20s, we're trying to figure out how much of that is real to us still. And how much of what we right. said we don't want to be us, we kind of sit and go, you know, that has always been a part of ourselves. We just didn't care to say or accept it then. Or right. see it. Exactly. Exactly. There's, you know, a great deal of this book, at least the latter part of it, is talking about, you know, identity and, mm -hmm. like I said, just kind of settling into your own skin and, and coming out of that interminable decade with, you know, with some semblance of, of who you are. Let me ask you this. When you wrote the book, was it your intention to capture that journey, or did you see this thematic building as you wrote? You know, it's really interesting that you, you ask that because... You know, when I started writing this book, I really just thought it would be, you know, a funny book about this, like I said, this sort of strange situation, sitting inside the box, you know, wearing little more than my underwear. Uh, <laughs> yes. And I would just write about that, those funny things, going on a Match.com audition, sitting in the box, you know, all this stuff. It was just so absurd. It was just so funny. But I remember um, I took this, when this book was at when it was 25 pages, when it was just a long essay, mm -hmm. I took it to New York State Writers 
workshop in uh, Skidmore one summer for three weeks or something. And I worked with a guy named Jim Miller. He's okay. in the news school, and he's amazing. Mm-hmm. And one of um, the very valuable things that he said to me was, you know, you can't just splash the funny or splash this ambivalence on the page without reflecting on it, you know? Yes. And so with that advice in mind, what I came to realize over the course of writing the book was that the box was sort of this perfect vehicle for, you know, exploring so much more about myself and, and about LA and about identity and about, you know, the structure of the book now and its finished form, the book sort of grows up along with me, mm-hmm. where the beginning of the book is all very like funny and kind of cavalier and the end of the book is is more self-reflective. And I think that's that was the work of myself and my editor as far as structuring it. But also, mm-hmm. that was also sort of an organic thing that, you know, the first half of the book was written earlier on. And then the second half as of the book As part of your written. thesis, right? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, exactly. And that, that should be said, too, is that... Um, so I started. I started writing about, like I said, as soon as I got into the got into the box, you had to write I about writing it. about it. Yeah. And my intention was, oh, this would be a great magazine article. And I started. Um, I, I kind of strung all these observations together till it was about I don't know eight eight ten pages, and I tried to sell it to the magazine. And I'm really glad that no one bought it. Because, <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but also because it just, it, it wasn't ready, yeah. you know, it was, uh, it just wasn't ready. And so I took it to, I, I took that kind of 10 page essay to a, I took a night class at UCLA, one of their extensions classes. And that was the first time that anyone else saw it. And I got workshops in that class. And my instructor in that class was Carolyn Kellogg, who's okay. the book editor at the LA Times. And she was really the first person to, to really encourage me. And she said, you need to pursue this. You need mm-hmm. to keep working on this. This is really good. So then um, that, taking that class kind of inspired me to go back um, and get a master's in writing. Okay. So I ended up at USC um, in the Master of Professional Writing program. And, and yeah, so then the book, the, the, the essay grew from eight pages to 25 pages, <laughs> whatever. And uh, it was workshops in several different classes there mm-hmm. with Bernard Cooper and Dinah Lenny and all these wonderful mentors and and that sort of 25 page essay then morphed into my thesis mm-hmm. which was for our thesis we had to write the first 130 150 i can't remember pages a significant of, amount yes yeah a significant amount for you know of a collection of essays and so that is where so anyway when i graduated i had this 150 pages and that basically was my manuscript of course from there to where you know, to book form, I wrote an additional 150 pages, and then we paired it back down, by yeah. about 50. But, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so it was. I can't even remember how that very long tangent just happened, but <laughs> that is how that is how the book got made. It, it's a. Uh, it's funny. I used to teach as a, uh, in writing, and one of the hardest parts was the moment where you show students the amount of work that went into the finished piece, which is four or five pages. And inevitably, by the end of the semester, there was a mountain of paperwork that led to it. But Exactly. The story of how a book becomes is always so much longer and more detailed than what you oh see Oh, my God. I, I still talk, I mean, again, because I'm a hoarder. Yes. <laughs> I have pretty much every single page that yep. I printed out while working on it, at least every page that I marked up mm-hmm. that has all my notes in the margin and everything because I just, you know, I worked so hard on all these pages and it took so long and it was such a labor that it's like I can't just throw them away because I don't know when or if I will ever look Excuse back them. at those things, but someday years from now, you know, I think I'll enjoy going, oh my God, I remember. I mean, some of the pages, are, you can't even read what's typed because there's mm-hmm. so much my handwriting scribbled over it and mm-hmm. crossed through and underlined and whatnot. So, Bradbury, um, yeah. Ray Bradbury released a book shortly before his death, I think a few years. It's a very, it's a short story, but the rest of the book is every edition of the short story prior to the final one with his notes. Maybe I think I'm going to be like Ray Bradbury and someone's going to want to publish my notes. You know you're a famous writer at that point. I like it. It's a thought. I think it brings us to our final section, which is this funny, this odd point we're at now where 
public and private are different than when they were when we were younger. I hate to say when we were younger because I don't feel old, but we grew up before cell phones and the internet were popular and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram were things. And you do talk about this ickiness of authors having to be their own promoters and self-promote and still feel authentic, like real, and retain that sense of authentic, of authenticness or the, uh, authenticity. There we go. Elocution. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I talk a lot about um, this sort of, you know, public versus private self and, yes. uh, you know, and how, and again, the box is sort of a wonderful vehicle to be able to explore, you know, this, this contrast. Because it's like, on the one hand, there's this person in the box that, you know, basically, you know, when I was in the box, I'd only present the very best version of myself, you know. If I wasn't Mm -hmm. feeling great or whatever, I'd call in sick. You know, I was in there looking, my hair was done, my, you know, everything, like I said, you know, it's the, it's the sort of best version of myself I was presenting there Mm -hmm. on display. Whereas, you know, like I said, most days I'm staring at a blank Microsoft Office, you know, document in sweatpants and, you know, just nothing sexy about it. Um, And so, you know, it's the same thing with our online selves, you Mm -hmm. know, it's the sort of highly, you know, stylized, sort of crafted, curated um, version of ourselves. It's like we're the art directors of our online lives, you know, if if Instagram or Facebook um, were actual reality, um, you know... (laughs) Everyone I know would always be on some fabulous vacation or at some mm-hmm. awesomely hip concert or, you know, about to eat some incredible meal. Um, whereas, like, in reality, they're probably, like, covered in baby vomit or cat hair and wearing, <laughs> Both. you know, yoga pants. I mean, at least that is how it is for me. Um, but it's like, you know, this sort of hyper-awareness of being washed, you know, because we're sort of hyper-aware of being washed, it's like we tailor, you know, our online behaviors to present the version of ourselves that we wish ourselves to be. You know what I mean? Like, no, you, have a, you have a great, I think it's in your chapter, Voyeur, which is on page 150. Yes, yes. Do you mind if I read a few pieces of it? No, not at all. Okay, this just it struck me when I was reading it earlier. Okay, this is on page 151. On a smaller, more routine scale, we willingly, eagerly even, hand over infinite amounts of personal information to the loosest of acquaintances, to non-acquaintances, to strangers, and this is voluntary. We sign up to do this. We log on to do this. By we, I mean everyday users and consumers of social media. By we, I mean me, because I'm also guilty of this. I think we all are, though, so you're safe. Then you go on to say, we trade our privacy for that connection, that validation we crave. In a lot of ways, I think our obsession with watching other people has more to do with us wanting to believe that we're also worth watching. If someone else doesn't see what we've done, that piece we've published, or that picture from the party last night, it disappears. Memories no longer suffice. Moments must be made concrete, made real through photos posted on the internet. And then you say, hyper-aware of being watched, we tailor our online behaviors present the version of ourselves that we believe or wish ourselves to be. And there are two strands of work here, at work here. The public versus the private self, and the person versus the persona. There's the person living the life, and then the same person mastering how their puppet appears. And it does strike me, you know, I think back to the old photo albums, where we would go through and select that microsecond of existence to say, this is what's memorable. And we still do that with Instagram, except now we put a thousand filters on it and call it sepia toned. And, <laughs> and you touch upon, too, that there's a, there's a threshold between how much you want to do it, how much you feel you need to, and when you feel like it's too much. Right, exactly. It's like, you know, it's so funny that, like, sitting in a box wearing very little clothing didn't unnerve me, but, you know, having sort of grossly overexposed myself on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, like, really does. There's just something very slimy and smarmy about it. It's like, hey, look at me, buy my book, and I'm going to be here Tuesday the 29th. I don't know, I just, the, the self-promotion aspect of it, it's it has really. always felt a little icky. But at the same time, you have to do it. Yes. And honestly, I'm at a wonderful independent publisher, mm-hmm. Skull. But even at some of the bigger houses, and even with some of the bigger name authors, it's the exact same way. You know, I have a published publicist through my publisher, and they they do great work up until the book is till the pub date, and then they work you know hard for it a month, maybe two if you're lucky after mm-hmm. the pub date. 
after that, it falls squarely on the author's shoulders, mm-hmm. you know, financially and otherwise. So, you know, you have to be out there and you have to hustle and, and you know, it's, it's just the nature of the beast. So it's, yeah, the self-promotion in general, um, sort of the selfie era that we're living in <laughs> right now makes me, it makes me a little nauseous, but at the same time, I'm very much um, guilty of it. Uh, you know, I'm very much guilty of it. And, and it's like, it's funny. I remember, <laughs> I remember in like 2004, there was an interview with, um, I think Chris, Chris Martin, that's the okay. Coldplay guy, right? Yes. And he was like, I am even sick of Coldplay. <laughs> and yes. like, you know, that was when whatever that album that came out in 2004, it was just everywhere. Every Banana mm-hmm. Republic you walked into, it was playing. You know, your mom was playing it, your that's brother. You know it was like, yeah. you couldn't escape it. Mm-hmm. I still hate that album. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he does but, too. you know, I sort of, now I sort of get what he means. Like, even I am sick of me. But, um, but you know, at the same time, it, I really want people to keep buying the book. And so you got to do it. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show your support, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash hearmediagrams. That's with a Y for a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or have us revise, you can write to us and my name, dot my last, and you me tires. See you all next time. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.